this is Accent, the Air University Teaching and Learning Center podcast. At Accent, we make connections between teachers, learners, and ideas in military education. The opinions, conclusions, and recommendations expressed or implied in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of Air University, the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or any other U.S. government agency. Follow us online at www.airuniversity.af.edu slash TLC or on Twitter at Air Teaching for more. Welcome to the Axon Podcast. This is the official podcast of the Air University Teaching and Learning Center, and I'm your host, Dr. Megan Hennessy. I'm here today with an old colleague uh, from the Army War College, Dr. Abram Trotsky. Dr. Trotsky holds a master's degree in Western classics from St. John's College and a PhD in political science from Boston University. He is a former lecturer at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy and now serves as a professor of communicative arts at the U.S. Army War College. Hey, Abram. Hey, Megan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. We're here today to talk about something that you are a subject matter expert in, considering your master's degree in classics, and that is a great books curriculum. So can you start off just telling us a little bit about what that actually is for those who don't know? Sure. So the great books was the go-to for liberal arts education in this country and beyond UK and beyond for a, a good long time and has sort of ebbed and flowed since. The idea being uh, the, the canon, uh, largely Western texts are taught. Uh, there's not agreement about that canon, but the general idea is that there's sort of a greatest hits from the Greeks to the 20th century and that crosses disciplinary boundaries from poetry, literature, into philosophy, theology, and science and mathematics if you're at a place like St. John's, but not always in the humanities-based programs where you find it. And there are pockets doing this uh, all over the country and world, but uh, as far as I know, not in professional military education. So that's uh, part of the impetus for bringing it to the War College. Higher education organizations are scaling back on the liberal arts. Why do you think it's important for military education to make the space for this type of curriculum? Well, part of the reason is the joint learning outcomes that and in learning areas that dictate our curricula, that's down to the course level, but even the institutional learning objectives and, and outcomes for the Army War College include uh, strategic and critical thinking and communication. So there's a first good right there that in discussing these texts, their students are demonstrating critical analytical and synthetic skills in their discussion and writing, but there's also a uh, an anti-up on, on the Socratic inquiry and dialogue that characterizes most seminars of the Carlisle experience at the War College. And then, then there's the application piece, which is not unique necessarily to the liberal arts, but the ability to take these texts and the themes they're from and apply them to contemporary challenges of democratic governance, national security, strategy, policy, and the profession of arms is, is really core to what we say we do. Is that a hard sell for the students and maybe also for decision makers and even your peer faculty members at the War College? Is it a hard sell to get people interested in this sort of class? Not in my experience, but the class does predate my experience. So I'll share uh, 
what I do know, there was a great books course um, before I came in 2019 that Dr. Andrew Hill had introduced and taught with Dr. Jackie Witt now at U.S. State Department. I have uh, taken notes off their uh, AY20 curriculum, and so it's something of a, there's a, some continuity there, about half the texts are the same. I know their enrollment was uh, double digits, which for electives at, in our institution is good. They run with six or more and, and uh, are often capped at 15 and sometimes fewer. And so in my experience, that's kind of a magic number for discussion. You don't want too many more than 15, um, even with two facilitators. But the uh, demand signal, uh, if you like, since I uh, took the reins has been similarly strong. We had double digits. We've had a few turn to audits and that maybe that was something they had signaled might happen because of the reading load. But uh, in addition to those uh, eight now enrollees, there's uh, faculty, interested faculty and staff who attend, which is uh, encouraging, you know, that the diversity of the interest from the PAO office to the library to the chaplaincy is really strong and that's uh, that says something about the um, I think the the durability the the uh, continuing relevance of uh, great books do you think it's also helpful that it's something different from what the students usually read in terms of policy documents or uh, theory is it just the novelty that also is appealing Maybe. Yeah, I think in some ways the type, the the student speaking from my own group this year, they seem somewhat self-selecting in that they're they're in it for more. They're in they were selected to attend um, a senior service college and they're getting all of the things they were promised that check the necessary boxes for their advancement in the profession. But for some of these folks who have been teachers themselves in some cases or um, high level civilians, uh, or just wanted something more like a traditional master's program or what they thought of as a, um, say a humanities-based master's program at a civilian institution, there is a certain draw there uh, and that's novel within PME. I think in some ways to your earlier point, it's novel to uh, gravitate towards the liberal arts in an era in which STEM education and professional education and applied and occupational forms of education have really gotten the spotlight everywhere from, from the State of the Union address down to STEAM classes in K through 12. There's a lot of talk about, an important talk uh, about science and engineering um, and the arts sometimes make it into that conversation, but only rarely do I hear advocacy for the humanities as just as important, especially in an era of partisan polarization, where there's an acknowledgement that the training you get in liberal arts is what feeds into good citizenship, specifically uh, a kind of civic uh, fluency, uh, an understanding of how deliberation happens, but also a knowledge of the historical context in which our legal system emerged and a lot of the ethical dilemmas that we have to navigate uh, have already been thought through uh, in various contexts and, and navigated. I think you're making a very strong case. <laughs> <laughs> so as you know, this is a, a research-based podcast. What does the research say? So you filled us in a little bit on what the public discourse is all about. What do Is there any research do we know of that lets us uh, 
defend the argument that this sort of curriculum belongs in professional military education? Well, I'll show my weakness then as a humanities centric teacher and scholar at the moment by not having the data you probably seek ready at hand. What I can point to is scholarship from uh, Columbia by the head of the uh, a similar program there and a product of that program there, um, Roosevelt Montas, uh, who's an academic in his own right, an administrator and uh, a, a great books champion has made the point that part of the reason for the decline has been a misperception that uh, the Western canon, the great books is a sort of Whig history, you know, that it doesn't represent uh, the changing demographics of higher education. And, and I sort of agree with his opinion. This isn't, this is a data point, uh, but this is born of many years of experience of his work in the higher ed uh, opportunity program, HAOP at Columbia. He sees this as something of a condescension. The idea that uh, students of color can only learn from authors of color may not give them enough credit that the liberal arts actually, for him anyway, were transformative. They were what allowed him to join the, the community of letters. And that's why he has passionately carried that torch ever since. So there, that's a book uh, that's some half autobiographical and, uh, and it may seem anecdotal, but he again and again in that book attests to the uh, success of the program in his lived experience of turning these HAOP students who feel like somewhat outsiders when they come in uh, into just Columbia students, graduates who have all of the uh, high-level Ivy League skills and, and competencies and confidence that that he himself gained, uh, and he attributes some but not all of that uh, uh, to the program, to the point where he actually forgets who, who is even in that uh, program and not. So as far as success of these not uncommon programs goes, that is programs like the Posse Foundation that are geared towards student retention, uh, retention of, of groups from underrepresented and historically marginalized communities in higher ed. That's a really great track record uh, that that program, which is a continuation of a program that started in 1919 for largely for uh, Eastern European Jewish students is still going strong. What you just said reminds me of some great work that Dr. Elizabeth Samet has done at West Point in terms of how a liberal arts curriculum can help influence leadership skills development, uh, communication skills development, which I know is your area of forte. And her argument is that you need to cast your net widely, especially as a military officer, um, to have you know this heuristic framework that helps you make decisions, that even if you haven't lived that experience yourself before you've read about it you've experienced it through someone else is that something that you've seen in terms of teaching your elective yes i think so and and, and i'll share one way in which this is borne out so frequently in offering a class in our unique environment of professional military education you're required to say that your square peg fits in the round hole of strategic leadership even if that's not exactly what you came into it thinking you're teaching, uh, and this is partly uh, statutory, partly perhaps accreditation, partly just institutional inertia. But it actually turns out in my experience that if you're making the case that reading about uh, figures 
say, military officer navigating a turbulent time and trying to understand class and how he fits into his society that a lot of the challenges, a lot of the decisions are certainly relevant to parts of the curriculum you would encounter elsewhere, say in the Department of Command Leadership and Management Strategic Leadership course. So there's also the ethical part, the fact that we have two uh, lessons to, devoted to ethics at present count, uh, one of them profession of arms, one of them law of war. Sometimes they, they're taught together, but uh, there isn't really a lot of curricula that I've seen, and now I'm speaking in the plural across, but I should limit my observation to the War College and my time there the past five years. There isn't a lot about moral judgment about ethical decision-making in context. And so I made the case uh, in, in pitching the course uh, that two recent authors, including Nobel laureate Kazuo Ishiguro, have argued that reading a text, in writing a text, it's almost like the characters are an artificial intelligence. They're, they're, they're uh, an entity we can bounce these scenarios off of and see what happens in a way that does inform our lived experience. I think what he actually did write a recent book about an AI nanny, but uh, he was speaking more broadly about what it's like to use the medium as a place to test ideas. So maybe that's a reach for an empirical dimension of a non-empirical discipline, but he's he's not the only uh, great recent author to make that analogy. Characters take on their own life, authors will tell you. But for readers, there's also a way in which this is a safe way to test your own propositions. That's not just fiction either. Think of Thucydides. The way that he writes history puts you front row to these years of decisions that led to a war that everybody wanted to avoid. But you are really in the room listening to the arguments. I mean, that's his style of history as he recounts speeches as best he can word for word so that you're forced as a reader to ask, well, what would I do or what's likely? What's the probable outcome? That is a kind of hypothesis testing. And that is useful, I think, for the practical uh, challenges that many of these strategic level thinkers and uh, staff and future decision makers will uh, be encountering and will be using. I love that. I would never have thought of that myself in terms of this comparison to the scientific method is there, you know, bearing this out a little bit further, is there any criticism then because the end is known, there is a conclusion for each of these works. Does that sort of harm your analogy in any way? Not really, because even in studying history, of course, we know how these end, but there is the, um, the facticity of counterfactuals, meaning they don't exist and they never will, so we can't test them empirically. But it's it's in the very asking that we're, in a way, doing a kind of philosophy, the hypothetical, if this would have happened, then this would have been likely, is still a data point for contemporary decision makers. And that that's irrespective of outcome. Uh, but the quality of those analogies and the arguments made, I would argue, is still dependent on the rudiments of the education that we're uh, reinvigorating at the senior service level. Specifically, in a Socratic seminar, you are forced to make evidence-based arguments, you're forced to disagree civilly, and back up your points with uh, data, and, and respectfully disagree and, and make counter-arguments. And that 
that habit, habit of mind, if you like, is at play very much in the great book seminar. So it's almost like medium agnostic, material agnostic. It's a place to test those same skills. It just so happens that the media, if you like, these texts are uh, entertaining in a way that you're you're kind of doing the both and that people may not necessarily um, know that they're taking the medicine of having yet a second seminar where they're being forced to do hypothesis testing or asked to do hypothesis testing. It just kind of happens naturally because arguably the reason the books endure is there isn't a settled interpretation of the conclusion you mentioned, meaning, okay, we know how it ends, but what does it mean? I love that. I love it so much. <laughs> what are, You mentioned Thucydides. What are some of the other titles that you read in the class? Oh, so I should clarify, that's a great uh, reference point that comes from the core curriculum. Um, but we, I actually start with Homer's Iliad, uh, and this was maybe a big selling point because the, it's the oldest text, oldest written text in the in the canon, in the Western canon. Uh, but it was resurrected by Dr. Jonathan Shea uh, in the context of understanding moral injury in his landmark book Achilles in Vietnam, and then again in his uh, uh, sequel uh, Odysseus in America, which are not uh, books of fiction but are ways of understanding how talking through texts like these can be therapeutic for people who are asking those same big questions about the meaning of their service. So that was a logical place to start and a, and a sustain uh, from past years. It's what I would have chosen anyway, but I was adamant of, about including Plato's Republic as well, which was a sustain and a book that was hugely formative for me. Uh, so we go from poetry to uh, philosophy proper a book so relevant because its main theme, uh, Justice, takes form the form of a debate about the role of the guardian class in uh, a democracy and other regime types, and really tries to understand the same kind of challenges that are present in our contemporary uh, balancing of uh, civilian leadership and, and military service. So we... Uh, do have uh, females represented in the, the canon, which is not always the case. We, we read um, Christine de Pizan's uh, Book of the City of Women as well to represent uh, the medieval period. And what I've done in each of these cases, I should add, uh, is a, choose a complementary text for each of these. So I'm naming the main thing we read, but in the case of Pizan, for example, the theme, art, science, and equality in utopia means uh, I'm assigning these early utopian authors. I chose Francis Bacon this year, but it could easily be to, uh, Sir Thomas More's book of the same name, Utopia, as a way of contrasting books, even a hundred years apart, but saying something similar, making, inviting similar observations about the era in which they emerged uh, and application to today, as well as themes that were in previous texts. So the Republic's uh, flirtation with perfection in governance is, is one example of how utopia can be a, a garden path, if you like, to um, unforeseen um, consequences. In the case of Homer's Iliad, we also read a comic, uh, a comedy. Um, this is Liz Estrada's, uh, the, the Liz Estrada, uh, which has been parodied uh, recently in the, the, the movie Chirac, um, a sex strike by women forces uh, 
fighters to reevaluate the necessity of conflict. So you can see in maybe both of these cases, there, the idea was to create a foil or, or have a second uh, text to, um, to make the discussion a little bit um, perhaps more relevant to the contemporary uh, debates. Um, there's a gendered component in, in two of the last four classes I mentioned, but there's also an explicit uh, grappling with uh, the significance of de development, uh, ethnicity, and race and service in, in the last two uh, selections, which are uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Uh, and it's also in, in Leo Tolstoy's um, The Cossacks, uh, stories of those who are serving, who find themselves in an environment in which they have to ask the meaning of their service as it relates to the, the civilizing mission, uh, if you like, uh, especially in Conrad's case. So that uh, pairing is with the Apocalypse Now uh, Redux, the re-release of uh, Coppola's masterpiece, which is really uh, 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 just a, a it's like Conrad in Vietnam. I mean, that is Heart of Darkness. Abram, where is the Shakespeare? <laughs> okay, so I'm glad you asked. I just wanted to take a beat because I know I've been rambling. I'm so excited about this lineup. So after uh, we do do, I didn't mention Lucretius. That was a skip. Uh, had to have a Roman in the mix. And of course, yeah, we had to have a Shakespeare piece. So uh, rather than teaching the Tempest, it's something I had uh, benefited from before, but wanted to do something different. I chose the last in the Henry ad, the Henry V, uh, the, the place of the St. Crispin's Day speech that many people are familiar, but they might be less familiar that the account, with the account of the Battle of Agincourt there, which is a, a seminal moment in the discussion uh, about uh, law of war, uh, specifically uh, uh, immunity and uh, uh, not, the uh, use and bellow component of what's permissible. Uh, and so that, uh, that class has actually been uh, postponed. It's now the capstone of the whole course. It's the last one we're going to discuss because of uh, the persistence of COVID. But yes, it, we couldn't, I agree, it wouldn't be complete without uh, Willie Shakes. We also were ambitious in reading uh, Don Quixote. Uh, no, no slouch, a long text. Um, but I thought that was really necessary to transition us to the modern uh, after Shakespeare, specifically the um, quixotic nature of some imperial adventures. And to really drive that home, I paired uh, Cervantes with uh, Bartolomé Las Casas, who wrote the uh, tragedy in, in the of the uh, Spanish Indies, the the account of Columbus's um, uh, expeditions there, that uh, is somewhat controversial. Uh, but this is um, this was more than a you know person of color perspective checkbox. This is actually trying to get into some of uh, the difficult history of uh, Western expansion that's and, and uh, co colonization that uh, isn't really in the conversation anywhere, as far as I can tell, in uh, in the institution. Otherwise, I don't know about yours. Not that I know of, no. It, it sounds like you have a full compliment, but let me make an appeal. Richard III. Okay. You're not the first <laughs> to mention, and I, I would heartily uh, entertain. Yeah. I mean, I like changing it up a little every year. So um, the our li uh, librarian who attends each time also said, you should either read all of the Henrys or do Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So I know, Abram, because you're a friend, you're an old-time colleague, that you have young children. So let me dive a little bit into the personal if I can. 
because I too have very young kids. If you are um, a faculty member trying to undertake a, a great books course, you've got a lot on your plate, you're trying to do teaching service and scholarship. How do you make the time? Do you have any life hacks for us in terms of keeping up with the reading? Mm. Yeah, if there were only a hack, I, I tried, like many, the speed reading uh, angle as an undergrad, which had uh, diminishing returns. And, and it may be worth mentioning since uh, many people returning to the academic world, especially after uh, time away in the professional world, are wondering, how, how am I supposed to pull this off? Like Even the core curriculum, without loading on a great book selective, it's a lot of pages. And you might be interested to know that the War College uh, previously did uh, recommend, in fact, my office uh, facilitated, Communicative Arts facilitated uh, a speed reading course. It was voluntary, but they were making a case that everyone should take this. And I think that the fact that it, it has diminishing returns, specifically when you're reading texts like Thucydides or any of the, the ones that I've mentioned. So what I mean is, the next best thing to reading it fast is reading it smart. And we sometimes call this predatory reading it in my corner. I don't know if that phrase is common there, but you can tell from, from the billing that you're, it doesn't mean read everything and it, let alone every, anything carefully. My argument when I teach a different course, uh, the art and science of effective communication is the judgment call of what kind of text am I reading? Does Is this written with the kind of thought that demands I digest it as if it's a conversation? I am in conversation with the text. I can't read that. I shouldn't read that predatorily because I won't get what I need from the text. The predatory approach assumes that there's a utilitarian relationship with the text that may be true of a given article or perhaps a book. But even the category of an essay, somebody who's put thought into a sustained argument, it, it usually means you're going to miss something and, it, and, and usually something important. You can get by uh, in class. You can demonstrate, I read with an asterisk, but you can't really get into the deep work of um, interrogating a text and understanding the quality of the argument right down to the footnotes if you just don't have time. So back to your question, we're all in that position of not having time. I'm afraid that the trade-off between sleep and reading for me, especially being a relatively slow reader, uh, it just usually ends up being somewhat zero sum. I protect uh, the three hours in the morning, uh, either from four to seven or less often five to eight to try to do uh, some reading or writing. And that's the advice I got from my uh my thesis advisor. Uh, and the only way I was able to complete a dissertation was uh, venturing into parts of the day that uh, I heretofore did not even know existed. <laughs> right. We, we don't even, we don't see a sunrise until, until we have kids in some cases, but uh, I guess it's not a hack, but I'm fortunate to have a partner who's supportive of, uh, of that professional obligation. And I find ways to, uh, to uh, give back in the evenings where I'm just, I'm just not really going to retain the stuff anyway, if I'm going real late. So that's me, but uh, I, listeners can write in. I'm still looking for that. 
a remote <laughs> hardcore for you get up at 4 a.m and read uh, <laughs> i was up before five today yeah oh man uh, reading montas uh roosevelt montas in in preparation for our conversation yeah oh goodness well good for you is there anything other than just blocking the time being dedicated to the time to reading Anything else that um, you want to share that you do to prepare for this course or, or things you would recommend for others thinking of a similar curriculum? Sure. Yeah. So this is a heresy, but I'm going to share it. What about audiobooks? This is nothing that a purist would have entertained, uh, not least because there was. it's only recently that we've had access to many of these books in that form. But if you think about it, as I was forced to in asking these uh, men and women who were taking my elective to read even more than they were already feeling burdened in reading, I, I offered, you know, Homer was, a, was spoken before he was written. And if you find a good translation and a good narrator, there's an argument that you're getting a more authentic experience of the Iliad than any reading. And I don't see why that argument ought to be restricted to that particular great book. So the translator uh, passes the check and the narrator is not monotone. It's not a, a function where you load text into a, a robot reader. There's, there is an actor essentially on the other end, a voice actor delivering you the same text in a different way. To me, even though I'm a, I'm a hardcore partisan of the relationship you, that I have with books and I, I am uh, besotted with books, I, I have to say my mind has been opened this year, somewhat forced open by the necessities of digesting a Don Quixote, right? This is a 900 page book if you're reading both parts. It's a 40 something hour listen, if I'm not mistaken, maybe 39 but that's that's still no slouch, right? You're still putting in the work. The difference is uh, there may be activities during the day, like maybe working out, where you can be doing both sides of the brain, right? It's not as if you're not engaging with the text. It just happens to be making it into your brain through your ears rather than to your eyes. Have you found that influences your recall? That's my problem. I can't remember as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm the kind of reader who has a hard time not reading with a pen because it's the engagement with the text, even that highlighting that some academics say is useless, right? If you underline everything, it's like you underline nothing. But there's something about tracking with the eye and importantly, adding your own observations in the margin that is lost upon listening. But I haven't done it long enough to know whether there are other advantages of using the ear. Uh, you can hit pause and ruminate on something that deserves it. And maybe that would lead to the same, that is effectively a cognitive highlight. <laughs> you know, that if I, I, I did it this morning in reading Montas. Uh, in fact, that very passage that I related to you, uh, not word for word, but I, I read it twice. So I'm able to paraphrase the idea that thinking that students of color can only learn from authors of color is something of a condescension. That's Montas's position. I thought that was important. I hadn't heard that before. Um, so, so I took a beat and I don't see the difference actually, whether I heard it, take a beat, internalize it because it's the words that are affecting me. I'll give you another example. 
I read the words that Montas's aunt gave him uh, $80 she had collected from the family on the night before his matriculation. And at the time, he didn't realize how important this was, but he cried thinking back on it when he found the envelope. And, and I almost cried. I'm a little vulnerable in the mornings, I guess. But it's the words. It's just words on a page. It's just uh, ink making these emotions happen. And I don't see the difference. Like, it's not just retention, right? It's the impact that it has on you that influences recall. And uh, I think that's just as effective, arguably in some cases more effective if it's not ink on a page, but uh, an actor uh, relating with all the emotion the text deserves that same episode. That would be my hypothesis. I think I'd have to agree with you. And what you're saying reminds me of that Billy Collins poem, uh, Marginalia. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the notes are furious or ferocious, skirmishes against the author. Um, and he writes <laughs> an entire poem about notes in the margins. And I, I have it. never forgotten that because that is exactly what I do too. <laughs> yeah, Billy Collins is a national treasure. If you listen to Billy, reach out. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> we have a fan club going. Um, Dr. Trotsky, thanks so much for spending time with us today. Is there anything else you want to share about great books? Oh, no, my pleasure. <laughs> and uh, I hope you can edit out the few dings of the messages that continue to come in uh, during this uh, very pleasant hiatus from the work day. So thanks for asking. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, April. Thank you for listening to Accent, the Air University Teaching and Learning Center podcast. Stay current on these and other ideas in military education by following us online at www.airuniversity.af.edu/tlc or on Twitter at Air Teaching.